So we have a theological problem here. We got these shipment and they shortchanged us the frogs. So we didn't get enough jump for Jesus' frogs. So we had to order some more. And the other ones came in but did not say jump for Jesus. And here's the problem. They jumped higher than the other frogs. So I thought, I've got a theological problem here, and I'm going to get up in front of Frack, and we're going to share these frogs, and it's like, but, you know, you get it. But I realize what's going on. Okay, here's the deal. When you jump for Jesus, you jump for Jesus. But when you're an unbeliever, you think you've got to jump up way high to reach God because he's way up there. But you can't jump that high. The only way you can be saved is if the Lord comes down to you and reveals himself to you. So the unbeliever has to jump higher because he's trying to jump up somewhere he can never get to or she can never get to, right? Amen? So how's that? <laughs> Whew! <laughs> and I, I'm not even going to share that with the kids. They're going to just go right over their heads. <laughs> but someday they'll be there. They'll have those discussions. Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 13, please? Acts chapter 13. And today we're talking about to the Gentiles we go, and I can just kind of see, it was like listening to Dan give the presentation, which Dan, thank you for doing that, that we'll just see what God has in mind. Now, if you're honest, it's always that way, but we kind of like to be in control and we think we got it planned out. So I have sermons planned out, I've got sermon titles planned out, and I'm just going to see what God does here at FRAC and kind of see where we're at. And I realize that sometimes we just got to kind of just go with what God's doing, right? In fact, the interesting thing, since this is a very missions-focused church, is to have youth with a mission here today, to have some of them. If there's any group in the world that gets used to seeing what God is doing at the moment, it's youth with a mission, right? Am I right? They train you to do that? Yes. And they train you to follow God's will and, and uh, to be spontaneous with that and everything else. And so I have friends, a lot of friends from youth with a mission, and I just know that that's kind of what they do, and, and that's amazing because we easily tend to get locked into what we think we should do. Um, a number of years ago, I did a board retreat in town for a ministry that was founded by an extremely charismatic man, and because he's so charismatic and so kind of fly by the seat of his pants, he, he got kind of controversial. And the only reason I'm not giving his name, because I just don't think that would be right, but this guy, we did the board retreat, was one of the most delightful people I had ever met. And he was talking about what first got him the way he was, was he was in a situation where God, he felt, was telling him to speak out in a situation you'd never speak out in. He's like, God, you got to be kidding me. And he obeyed the Lord, and he spoke out. It took incredible boldness and everything else, and that courage, and God blessed that. And so what I found was this was a man who felt that his job was to do anything he could to speak for the Lord and to have courage and to overcome his fear and to be bold. And I thought, you know, it's easy to make fun of someone for doing that, but um, in reality, he cares enough for the lost, he's trying to share that, and I honored that. So I walked away thinking, I, I actually could really learn from this man. I appreciated his character, and so it was great. So I'm telling you all this because we're in... Acts chapter 13, the missionary journeys are starting. We're getting on the road with Paul. We're watching this take place. They go to all sorts of different people, and uh, it really gets into the missions and everything else. And so before I start the sermon today, today's just, we got a lot of stuff going on today, but I want to show a video 
Because one of the things I've been thinking about, and the elders have thought about this as well, is that we are a Christian and Missionary Alliance church, right? But, and, and, you know, if you're this way, don't feel bad. I mean, it's kind of common. We are known as Front Range Alliance Church. I think the Front Range thing we can figure out. But where does the name Alliance come from? And I know that there are people that walk in the door and they're not really sure. And so I want to tell you that it comes from us being in the Christian and Missionary Alliance. And it is a, an organization with an incredible legacy and we want to share that with you today. So if I can get my video going, let's full screen. I want to show you a video about the story of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. The year is 1881. This is you, a 30-something pastor of a prominent church in Manhattan. You have five kids, a wife you cherish, and your salary is equivalent to 110,000 in today's dollars. Life is good. But there's an ache in your soul. You are witnessing thousands of immigrants flooding onto New York City's docks every day. About half a million will arrive in the coming year. But they aren't being reached with the good news. So you leave your wealthy congregation to go lead a band of self-described poor, few, and weak believers who share your Tell you what, passion I'm run it to back. the gospel to Just out of these new neighbors. The video. A 30-something pastor of a prominent church in Manhattan. You have five kids, a wife you cherish, and your salary is equivalent to 110000 in today's dollars. Life is good, but there's an ache in your soul. You are witnessing thousands of immigrants flooding onto New York City's docks every day. About half a million will arrive in the coming year, but they aren't being reached with the good news. So you leave your wealthy congregation to go lead a band of self-described poor, few, and weak believers who share your passion to take the gospel to these new neighbors. You also now have no salary. With five kids, this career decision doesn't sit well with your sensible, no-nonsense wife, Maggie, who's incredible, by the way. When our founder, A.B. Simpson, told his wife, Maggie, he was leaving his secure job, she asked, where will all of this lead? 140-some years later, we can celebrate that the question Maggie asked has led to an exponential increase in God's forever family. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. Within a few years of quitting his high-powered pastorate, Simpson started a church in New York City named the Gospel Tabernacle. You know Times Square? The church was right here. Simpson launched an illustrated magazine. There were a couple issues of it. And he founded the Missionary Training Institute, or MTI, now called Nyack College, located in the heart of Manhattan. It's beautiful. He also wrote a couple books. Well, a lot of books. And now today, the Alliance ministers throughout the United States in more than 2,000 churches and 38 languages. But what about outside U.S. borders? In 1884, Simpson commissioned the first missionary team from MTI to take the good news to the Congo. Over the next 37 years, 30 Alliance missionaries would sacrifice their lives in bringing the gospel to Africa. Yet today, the Alliance churches in the Democratic Republic of Congo minister to more than 1 million believers. And across Africa, there are now more than 2.25 million people worshiping Jesus in Alliance churches. In Latin America, it was a challenge to gain a foothold for the gospel due to ongoing persecution and rampant tropical disease. 
On a visit to the region, Simpson nearly lost his life to illness, but said the experience helped him understand the dangers our pioneer missionaries faced. There are now more than 379,000 Alliance believers in 20 countries. With pioneering efforts in the Transjordan beginning in 1890, there are now more than 100 Alliance churches across the Middle East. Today, the Alliance is the largest evangelical church in Syria. In the late 1890s, Robert A. Jaffrey left his family fortune to serve in China, French Indochina, and Indonesia. Jaffrey pioneered across the Asia-Pacific region to advance Christ's kingdom. But these efforts weren't met with a warm welcome. In 1900, in China, the Boxer Rebellion resulted in the massacre of 21 Swedish CNMA missionaries and 14 children. Their sacrifices and that of Alliance workers who persevered in ministry in the decades following resulted in the good news reaching the far corners of the continent. Today, there are more than 2.4 million Alliance believers across Asia, with over 1.3 million in Vietnam alone. In North and Central Asia, as of 30 years ago, missionary work was illegal. And when the Alliance entered Mongolia in the early 1990s, there were just three known believers. Recently, the Alliance-related network of churches celebrated its 20th anniversary. 18 additional fellowships are now part of this network. In gospel-resistant Europe, the Alliance is seeing spiritual breakthroughs in Spain, Germany, France, Portugal, Italy, the Netherlands, Bosnia, Kosovo, Montenegro, the UK, Ireland, Poland, and Ukraine. But that's not all. We have teams serving in places so dangerous, we can't name them here. But we can celebrate that one minority people group now has its first church with 20 new believers. Now, let's go back to Maggie. Where will all of this lead? She asked. Was it worth it? Did it matter? I think you can answer that question yourself. Isn't that awesome? I have another video I will show it another Sunday uh, showing the diversity in the Alliance. Uh, one thing I've seen across the kingdom, kind of far and wide, is that God has raised many different organizations, and it's not a matter of competing with one and another. I think he does that for a lot of reasons, uh, one of which is if something happens to one, there are others carrying the gospel. So we just want to be faithful to the Lord and honor him where we're at. But I think uh, we don't want to use the word proud like we're proud of the alliance. That may not be the word, but I think the alliance is a very noble effort and I just want you to know that you're involved in a noble effort. So if you never really knew why you're in an Alliance church, you understand now. And when FRAC was founded uh, years ago, uh, the Christian Missionary Alliance headquarters moved to Colorado Springs, like all other ministries, right? We're the Vatican City of uh, the United States. And uh, when that happened, then a number of CMA people moved to FRAC. They got involved in FRAC, and that's been tremendous. We've had a, a, some amazing people here. Uh, in recent years, the CNMA has decided to move from Colorado Springs, partly because of the cost of living here. It's gotten so expensive. And so they're now in, what is it, Reynoldsburg, Ohio, which is a suburb of uh, Columbus, right? Uh, I would have a hard time being there just because I don't like Ohio State University, but that's just me. Uh, but anyway, uh, all kidding aside, it, uh, it, it's got them in a situation where they have, I believe, a live, work, play, retail community that they've developed. And what I wanted to share with that is I think it shows that 
our human nature is to let's hold on to what we've known, our facilities, our structures, and everything else. But God has moved in many, many different ways uh, to cause ministries to change, to expand. Uh, a number of ministries I know even here in Colorado Springs are either moving out or selling buildings. And so that's uh, not unusual. God's just doing a lot of things across the kingdom, uh, partly because of the way our society is, partly because of how expensive things have gotten. So the deal is we have to remember that just because we make change like that doesn't mean that God's not working, that God's not there. It's just that the circumstances around us are changing. And I think as we go into missions, we have to, we have to really think about it. Um, when we went through our fire in 2013, one of the real lessons that jumped out at me, I mean, pretty much right away, is that the life I once lived in an instant changed, and I'm no longer living that life. And it made me realize how we get so used to the lives we have and to what we know. And change is not fun because it puts us in a new place and out of our comfort zone. So as we look at the book of Acts and we think about the missionary journeys, think about the change that Paul would have gone through. It was constant change. And not everybody likes that for sure. Uh, I have decided in life that the only people that like change are the ones inflicting it on other people. Isn't that right? We don't like to have our apple cart upset, but yet in God's kingdom, he's always nudging us. He's always nudging us, you know, talk to that person, do this, go there. And so we have to get used to that and, and let God be in control. And that's hard. That's hard. The control battle goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve didn't want to do what God said. It was a battle for control, and it's been that way since. So look with me at Acts chapter 13, and we will see in the book of Acts the spread of the gospel. And we will see Paul and Barnabas going out and uh, watching what happens. And as always the case, we get into uh, people that receive it and people that don't, but we still communicate. So today, I think we're going to finish it today. To the Gentiles we go, Acts chapter 13. I think, Lord willing, next week will be in Acts chapter 14, which I'm calling through many tribulations. And then the week after that, Acts 15, the famous Jerusalem council, which is an amazing story in itself, that mankind may seek the Lord. And that's a statement in that passage, and I think that's ultimately what Acts 15 is about. And then Acts 16, when they do the Macedonian jump, they jump from Asia Minor to Macedonia. I'm calling that leap of the faith. That's Acts 16, which, Lord willing, will be October 23rd, unless the Lord comes back and he can teach whatever he wants. And then I'm excited to get into this one as well. In Acts 17, when Paul ends up in Athens, he comes into what is really a marketplace of ideas. And I'm sharing it with you this way because I want you to think about our current culture being a marketplace of ideas. The battle of ideas, and it's definitely there and it's strong. So we'll see that in the coming weeks. So we showed the film on the Alliance. I wanted to mention in terms of shifting, you may know this, uh, Anna Vander Beel, uh, brother Andrew, passed away this week. Did y'all see that? What ministry came ultimately from brother Andrew? Open Doors, which is one of the uh, well-known ministries ministering to the persecuted. So that sprang from Brother Andrew. Brother Andrew was a man of great boldness and courage, just like so many others in missions, but he passed away this week. And um, I remember somebody said years ago, when Billy Graham dies, what will God do to replace Billy Graham? And I saw a rebuke of that. It was interesting that said, God doesn't have to replace Billy Graham. 
It's not about Billy Graham. It's about the plan of God. And it's about whom he chooses. So all I would say with this is uh, I mourn the loss of Brother Andrew, a man of great boldness who caused amazing things to happen with the Bible being smuggled into different places, the Bible going around the world, but also the persecuted being helped. An incredible legacy he built. But he's gone now, so what does that say to us? It tells me we need to be faithful. And if we're all faithful doing what God has called us to do, then he will use that for the kingdom. The kingdom of God never relied upon Billy Graham or Brother Andrew or you or me. We're just blessed to be a part of it. So that's the thing. And now we're going to be, I think, finally, in Acts chapter 13, we're going to be uh, looking at the first missionary journey. I made this map a little bit bigger because I know some of you are having difficulty uh, seeing the words, so hopefully you can read this fairly well. If not, I'll zoom in a little more next time. But the first missionary journey is going to start in Antioch and uh, the port of Seleucia, go to Cyprus, and then go up into Asia Minor, which we call Turkey today. We got into that a little bit last week. They will go up inland. Mark will drop out. Apparently, Mark was afraid of something on the trip, and he dropped out. And they will go all the way down to Derby, which is at the end of the red line. You can kind of see that. Then they will kind of double back, go to the coast, and shoot straight across to Antioch. And so that's the first missionary journey. So just to put it in perspective, that's where we're at right now. Acts chapter 13 and verse 13. And it says... Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they've come up to the coast. Perga is 12 miles inland. And John, that's Mark, John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. We'll find out later this did not sit well with Paul at all, but that's for another sermon. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. Now there were like 16 Antiochs in the region. So if you're thinking, I'm confused, I thought we already saw Antioch, we did, but there's 16 of them named after Antiochus. So just hang in there. So this is the Antioch in Pisidia, and you can see it up there where the red line peaks up there at the top, that's this Antioch. And so their custom always was to go to the Jews first, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down, verse 15. After the announcements... Uh, I'm just kidding. But after the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said the following, and he gave this sermon. So let's think about the synagogue. They go into the synagogue. The synagogue ritual was that they would read from the law and the prophets. And then they would have somebody give an exhortation or a word of encouragement. Now I think it's kind of funny, who do they pick on here? The visitors. So see, there's a precedent for calling your, out your names. They asked the visitors here to speak, to give a word of encouragement. And that, remember, this is not a church per se. These are Jews in the synagogue. In fact, in this chapter, think about this, because we often forget just how diverse this was. In this chapter, they will encounter seven, seven different social levels of people. Synagogue officials, Jews, proselytes, God-fearers who were not saved, devout women of high standing, and they were not saved, Gentiles, and leading men of the city. So Paul had to be extremely flexible, but his message penetrated all levels of society. Paul was incredibly flexible. 
So I love this, uh, after they read from the Law and the Prophets, and then they say, brothers, uh, you have any word of encouragement? Now, you're dealing with Paul here. Uh, yeah, I got something I want to say. <laughs> Talk about an open invitation. The Mishnah, a commentary on the uh, law, says, in the order of service, it would have been the Shema, which is Hero Israel from Deuteronomy 6, prayer, Torah reading, the prophets reading, the priestly blessing, and the exposition. So now we have a little sermon here, and they're asked, hey, do you want to encourage our people? And that's what's going on. So notice Paul's opening. I love this. I think we can learn so much from how Paul speaks to the people in verse 16. Paul stood up, and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of our people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he led them out of it. I'm going to stop for a moment. I'm sorry. What do you see in what Paul says here? He's respectful. He calls out the different groups. In effect, we have men of Israel, the Jews, and those who fear God who were not Jewish in background. And what else does he do? He identifies with them. You see this? He says that God, uh, this people chose our fathers. In other words, I'm one of you. So that gives them a little credibility to be able to speak to the group. They don't see him as an enemy at this point. And so let me read on then. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God had brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So I want to unpack just a little bit here, just uh, interesting things I see. Um, notice he gives a very quick description of the history of Israel. And he gets to David, and then what does he do? He jumps a thousand years forward to David's son, Jesus. So there's an intention behind the message he's given. We don't know how long this sermon was. This may be a summation of it, but uh, he didn't need to talk a real long time to get this point across. And I think it's just kind of funny, as a little side note, in verse 18, for about 40 years he put up with them. That word in the Greek means to put up with someone's moods. So in the wilderness, God put up with the moods of Israel. And it's a good thing he did. He put up with them because otherwise he would have judged them and destroyed them. He had to put up with them. Now, I don't know if any of you can relate to that putting up with someone's moods, but I'm going to move on. But I just thought it was interesting. That's what God did with Israel. So you come down to Saul. Now, have you ever read the story of Saul in the Old Testament of how Saul's introduced? 
I just think it's kind of funny. There may not be a lot to this, but what was David by profession? He was a shepherd. When you first meet Saul, what do you see with Saul? The answer is he was chasing wild donkeys. I just think it's kind of funny. David was a shepherd and Saul was a wild donkey chaser. I, I, I don't know. That just, that's just kind of how I look at it. Two totally different personalities, one of whom had a whole heart for God and the other one who did not. And so I think it's interesting. Saul gets very short shrift here. And in verse 22, he's removed. Now we're going to get to David, the man after my heart. Wouldn't you love to be known as that, a man or a woman after God's heart? Wouldn't you like to be called that when we get to heaven? Wouldn't that be awesome to hear? Well done, my good and faithful servant. You were someone after my heart. And so there you go with David. And then David's offspring. It was never really about David. It was about the offspring. And in verse 23, just like Peter did when he gave his sermon in Acts chapter 2, now Paul is going to get very specific about Jesus being the Savior as he promised. Now, when he says that, you'd have to think as a Jew in the synagogue, he is saying that somewhere in the Hebrew Bible that God promised a Savior, and this was Jesus. And then he says in verse 24, before his coming, the coming of Jesus, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. As John was finishing his course, he said, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And by the way, in their culture, even a Jewish slave would not untie the master's sandals. That was considered to be below them. So John was in effect saying, I'm not even worthy to be a slave. It's pretty amazing. And the running the course here literally is the word for a course or a track, like Dave Comstock. I'm not sure if you're in here now. I mentioned this uh, this morning. He ran a half marathon yesterday, so that's what Dave did. He ran a course, and that's exactly the word that we use here, that uh, he was running the course God had laid out for him, but he wanted to make sure everybody knew that it was not about him. He was running a course ahead of Jesus, in effect, giving the announcement about Jesus. So we've left the audience here, Paul has, with the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was predicted by this one that everybody flocked out to, basically, John the Baptizer. We don't know his denomination, so I'm going to call him John the Baptizer. And John finished his course, but the course of Jesus would continue. So what we see in the book of Acts is when they do a sermon, they reach back into the history of God's people, they go back to the scriptures, and then they draw an application. They basically take it, and they say, this is what I want you to do. And this is where it gets testy with the people, because now he is going to tell them, you need to do something. And so here's how he works into it. Verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem... And their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. In other words, you guys had it read to you over and over, and you missed it. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Now, what person, if you will, is he using here? He's saying they. He started out by saying we, our fathers, 
And now he's saying they, they did that in Jerusalem. I wonder if he's going to get to the point of saying you. We'll have to see. Verse 29, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were now his witnesses to the people. And by the way, the raise up, is, uh, occur, that word occurs several times in this passage. It's one of the themes of the passage. And so now, Paul says in verse 32, you, he brings in you. We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children. By raising Jesus is also it is written in the second psalm, Psalm 2-7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now how do you think they're reacting to this to hear that God looks at Jesus as his son? I think they're starting to get a little nervous, a little antsy, because they don't see the son as being the way he's talking about. But he's speaking messianic. In verse 34, as for the fact he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. Now he's going to start going into Psalm 16 in just a second. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. And he says in Psalm 16, you will not let your holy one see corruption. David died, he decayed. Jesus died, he was raised from the dead. He never decayed. So verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. And again, there's that incredible, beautiful way of putting death for the believer. Fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, Jesus, did not see corruption. So now let's go back to you. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses. We get into the word for justification. You don't really see it in the ESV, but this word for freed, which we see twice here, is the word dikaioo in the Greek, but what it means is they were justified, they were made righteous. I was telling Sunday school this morning, uh, I feel like with mankind, basically from the Garden of Eden on, We've enslaved ourselves continually. Man's drive, whether he or she realizes it or not, is to enslave oneself. We enslave ourselves with a lot of things. We're distracted. We're addicted. And it's been human nature ever since we rebelled from God. And so we cry out for freedom. Now, in Israel, they cried out for freedom from the Romans. But what we really need is that spiritual freedom. And, you know, I look at a church like this of, I, I think, almost all believers, but I don't know if you and your life are in a place where you're so confused spiritually that you feel like you're just enslaved to stuff you can't even define. Maybe today is your day of freedom. Maybe today you need to be freed up and justified, not by what you've done, but by what the Lord did, dying for your sins. Because these people listening here need to be freed. I mean, it could be we're broadcasting that there are people watching who need to know this message. You can have freedom. You can be justified in God's sight. But not because of what you do. And again, as funny as the frog thing was, it's really true that you can leap as high as you want. 
but you can never leap up to God. He's got to come down to you. And that's what freedom is. And I think it's just so amazing, um, looking at the Old Testament, there's this constant captivity, this constant rebellion. They could never get out of it. They could never work their way out of it. And that's why Jeremiah 31 said what? We've got to write a new law on your heart, a new covenant. You have to have a new law because you can't do it. It's got to come from Christ. And so he's warning them, and he says, verse 40, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. God was doing a work then, he's doing a work now. Can we, for a moment, stop thinking about our own lives and think about what God is doing around us in the world, in our community, in our church? What does God want? What is God up to? That's what we need to think about because we get so wrapped up in our own thoughts. Well, for these people, it was a matter of life and death. So this is the end of his sermon. This is his altar call, if you wish. And now let's look at what happened. And this is classic, verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. That's the preacher's dream. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. I think what he's saying is to continue to understand it. So it initiated a dialogue. It got people thinking. And so now in verse 44, sure enough, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, as so often happens, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. This word is not just the word for revile. This is the word in Greek for blaspheming. Now, I'm not saying Paul's God, not at all. But what I'm saying is they associate his word basically with, with God and it's almost blasphemy what he is saying. It's a similar response to when Jesus was speaking in Luke 22. So Paul is being treated like Christ was, where they say, you're blaspheming and we want to kill you. Some of them would say that. And so it's pretty rough. And this is what happens when the word of God goes out, and we'll see it throughout the book of Acts. You will have those who receive, and you will have those who revile. And that's what we have here. And so verse 46, here you go, here's the switch. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside, and that word literally means to thrust it aside, and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. This is a, a key strategic moment in the book of Acts. Now, they'll always go to the Jews, but he's saying, you know what? Because you intentionally thrust aside the word of God, we're going to the Gentiles. And I, you know, just for a moment, just take a look at this statement. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Isn't that an interesting phrase? I think that's really fascinating he would say that. And just think for a moment, what would it mean that in effect they're saying we're not worthy of eternal life? Now, I know today some of the people we talk to, 
don't feel that they're worthy. Uh, I had have a very close friend who was on a SEAL team, and they were in a situation where basically uh, there was nothing they can do. Innocent people were killed. They could have intervened, but they were not allowed to. And years later, he was telling me this, and he's like, I cannot forgive myself. I cannot forgive myself, and God cannot forgive me. It's like, no, man, God can forgive. God can forgive anything. He's like, no, God can forgive, but he can't forgive this. You know, some people, many people are so wrapped up in their unworthiness that they can't see a way out. They can't see that they could ever be worthy of being received by God. What's the problem in that? They're right and they're wrong. That's why God came. And it's kind of funny, that frog thing, I mean, that's so true. Basically, they're saying, I can't leap high enough to God. And I'm like, you're right, you can't. That's why Jesus died on the cross for you. What do you think took a response of that magnitude that God would send his own son to have his son executed for you? If you could jump that high, it would have been brutal for God to have ever sent Jesus to the cross, right? This is the message we proclaim. And I challenge all of us to pray that this week God would put someone in our path who thinks he or she is unworthy of God so that we can share the gospel with them and say, no, there is an answer, there is a hope. And so verse 47 gives the hope, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And to finish it out, verse 48, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district, but they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the response a brother Andrew would have. I've been persecuted. I'm filled with joy. And before I go, and I'll wrap up in just a second, I find it fascinating in chapter two or 13, verse 48. You don't expect this in the book of Acts. But here you go. As many as were appointed to eternal life. Believe. It's passive voice. God did it. They were appointed. They were assigned. And I would like to explain more, but we've run out of time. But this is the basis for election. Now, seriously, this is... Only God knows what he's doing with this. But God is working, and it's all about God. So let's praise God for that. Now, in a moment, we're going to uh, have communion. And so I want to tee it up by saying this. One thing this passage says clearly is that a person can respect God but not be redeemed. So let's make sure that for those and those around us that as we respect God, we also are taking the conversation another step to say, but you've got to stop leaping and you've got to trust in Jesus as the only way for your salvation.
Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here at FRAC. Thank you for the incredible legacy of the CMA. Uh, thank you for A.B. Simpson, a man you called and kept on the scene for a while and then moved on, and yet so many have taken the torch and run with it. Father, help us to be faithful to you. We don't understand all of these things. We don't really know how election works. If we're honest, it's your territory, not ours. But we know that you choose. We know that you work. And our job is to be obedient. And this week, I pray that we would boldly ask you to show us people who need to know about you. And we would respond in obedience and share that word to the glory of Jesus. Amen.